Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctors In podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba, and this is our special series, What Plants Crave, where we're talking to indoor and greenhouse growers about the plants they grow and how they got to where they are now. Today commemorates a very special episode on the podcast. It is our 50th episode and my 25th interview on the podcast. I'm super excited to celebrate this milestone by interviewing two of Colorado's OG growers in the state's legal adult use cannabis market, Chris Chapdelaine and Andrew Alfred, who were the senior manager of R&D and chief scientist at LiveWell before the merger with Pharmacan. Chris is now the Director of Control Systems and Andrew, the Chief Scientist of the multi-state organization that is one of the largest vertically integrated cannabis companies in the US. Since Colorado and Washington citizens took the leap in 2012, marijuana legalization has gradually, or rapidly, depending on your perspective, proliferated across the country. And I'd say that many of the later adopters have benefited from the lessons learned and cultivation wisdom that these two gentlemen gained through the brute force practice, early adoption of new and unproven technologies, and the tepid support of inexperienced and wary engineers, building contractors, suppliers, and manufacturers. I met Chris and Andrew back in 2015 at the Indoor Conference on Controlled Environment Agriculture in Panama, where I spoke about HVAC, of course, and they attended along with, I don't know, five or six others from LiveWell, including John Lord, to learn about indoor cultivation from the world's leading scientists in CEA. I was impressed, honestly. 10 years ago, it seemed to be more the exception than the rule for cannabis growers to seek answers and know-how from academic research and the practical experience of greenhouse and indoor growers of non-cannabis crops. But since then, there has been a lot more crossover as cannabis growers acknowledge the value that traditional horticulture has to offer, and scientists find creative ways to address cannabis growers' biggest cultivation and post-harvest challenges. Andrew and Chris and the LiveWell team recognize this from the beginning, and I believe they have been role models to other growers seeking to grow the best weed possible, and you guys have been role models for me as well. I know that was a long-winded introduction, but this industry has really come a long way, and Andrew and Chris, I give you and LiveWell a lot of credit for helping advance this industry and making it more rooted in science and engineering. Plus, we've known each other a while, and, and I don't know if you know this, you probably do, but you were the first indoor cannabis cultivation facility I ever visited, so you guys hold a very special place in my heart. Uh, with that, welcome. Thank you guys so much for commemorating this special episode. I'm so excited to have you here. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you, Nadia. All right. Well, let's start with your origin stories. How did each of you guys find cannabis cultivation in LiveWell? Chris, you want to go first? You got there before I did. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Um, so, yeah, um, I just, uh, you know, I, I actually moved to Colorado oh, about 15 years ago uh, to pursue cannabis in a legal fashion, uh, kind of try and get my foot in the door in the industry. Um, so I moved out here from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And um, yeah, I started at uh, a smaller operation, a different company, it wasn't Live Well. I worked there for several years. That uh, company ended up uh, kind of going through a, um, a sale. And as a result, I parted ways with them and was kind of looking for my next venture. Um, I was actually working for a, a temporary labor uh, company at the time that was just outsourcing labor to cannabis operations at various locations. And uh, they sent me to uh, live well one day. And um, yeah, I, I walked into the warehouse and it was the biggest grow operation I'd ever seen. And um, yeah, I knew right then I wanted to work here. And we had signed some contracts at the time that had stated like a non-compete so that we could not take a job with any company that we were being outsourced to. Uh, and me and a handful of others that some of which are still with the company, our contracts actually got bought out uh, from the, the labor, temporary labor company and LiveWell took us on as permanent employees. And I got my start here of doing basic garden work, um, originally cloning, transplanting, shop vacuuming the floor, pushing a broom, kind of whatever needed to get done. And then just kind of slowly worked my way into different uh, aspects of the company starting in propagation. And then there was a need for somebody to begin uh, procurement. So 
getting supplies for the company at the time. So I, I worked into a, a purchasing role um, around that same time. John Lord uh, was interested in getting the company off of like traditional, like hobby line bottled nutrients. And uh, yeah, he said, we need to get on a traditional agricultural type of fertilizer salts. And so he asked the purchasing guy if he could do something like that. And I was like, yeah, sure. It sounds, uh, sounds pretty reasonable. You know, I've got some chemistry experience and uh, yeah, we can get this figured out. So transitioned uh, or during the purchasing role, started working with Argus Control Systems to work on an injection system, a fertilizer injection system, and kind of reverse engineer the recipes that we, that we were using as bottle nutrients and, and come up with our own proprietary blend and then purchase the system, get the system installed and get the company switched over to standard agricultural grade uh, fertilizer salts. Around that same time is uh, when we also as a company saw a need for what was loosely referred to then as R&D, which was really just looking for new genetics. Um, and so, you know, it's a little foggy, but at some point in there, I transitioned from um, purchasing agent to R&D and there wasn't a department. So we just made one uh, and it was just me and, and one other guy at the time. And yeah, so the primary goal then was to uh, look for new genetics. And this is about when Andrew came into the picture. The, the owner of the company had some ambitions at the time to look into tissue culture. Um, so yeah, we, we put a, a, an ad out on Craigslist, uh, just looking for, for someone that could fill that role. Yep, and that's how you got me. Yeah. And that's how that's you guys how. were so ahead of your time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I get, yeah, I guess. Yeah. We didn't, they wanted to do tissue culture. So I, I feel like that definitely, it was like 2012 or something. So like real thought leaders there, but they didn't know yeah. how to, they, they weren't exactly sure how to find someone to do it. Cause no one did it. And they, so they thought, well, let's just stick it on Craigslist and see what happens. And Are you serious? I, that's how yeah. I find the job. I was uh, no way. <laughs> yeah, I was. I had like just graduated college, and I was thinking, just moved to Colorado. It wasn't even my radar that cannabis was like getting voted on to legalize. It was the same year I graduated, 2012. Um, and so I showed up, and then a month later, the amendment passed, and. I spent that year, I, I got a job. I was just kind of kill, killing time. I, my plan was to go to medical school. I was applying to medical schools and um, I had a job in like a food safety lab. And then I was in Denver and, and looking for a new new job, um, again, just to kind of pass the time, uh, pay my bills. And I was on Craigslist, just looking at biology positions. I just like filtered science and saw a posting uh, at a cannabis company uh, and they're down the road. And I, I got the phone call to come and interview. And I didn't know like how to like dress for that interview. Like I didn't want to like, I didn't want to like look like, I wanted to look professional, but I didn't want to look too square. And I was like, I, mean, I was like a stoner in college and at the time. And so I, I didn't, I just didn't know what, what line to tell, but uh, I, the position was clear. They wanted someone to start a tissue culture lab. So I Googled what tissue culture was and I, <laughs> That's and, and awesome. so I, I had a biology degree and I had a lab job in college. And so I was really familiar with, with some of the principles. Uh, and so I, I printed out a few research papers from um, uh, Mississippi and, and I highlighted some stuff and I, and I showed up with them in a little manila folder. And in my interview, I was like, you know, this is, I'll, this is where I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Uh, here's my plan. And I got, yeah, I got the job and, uh, I showed up to work and I was like, all right, where do I start? And they, I think Chris and I shared a desk. We shared a three-legged desk. We each sat on each, on either side of it. And, uh, my first lab was in a janitor's closet with like a Rubbermaid tote on its side that I'd spray down with alcohol. And that was my like tissue culture hood. And then I graduated to a tent. I've got like a grow tent and um, I would have my little um, stir plate making my media on our desk. And I, you know, people would get mad at me because the little stir rod would rattle and everyone was trying to do their work and I was bugging them. And yeah, so I don't know, really humble beginnings. And then as the, I remember the first time that like my role in R&D advanced past just being the guy, the tissue culture guy was um, I looked at, I looked at our clone gel or something and noticed it had the same ingredients, all the, all the ingredients that were in the uh, clone gel that we made. 
um, were um, some ingredients that I had for the tissue culture stuff. And I was like, oh, I can make that from scratch and we could probably save some money. And I pitched that idea and we did an experiment and we, and we have the same clone success rates with the new, with the homemade stuff. And uh, I think ownership was like, got any more ideas like that. And uh, I think they kind of with combined with Chris kind of paving the way on the fertilizer uh, system, it kind of, it, we, we just kind of kept that. It was, it was more of just like a, a wind streak of like, all right, what other ideas can you guys come up with and how can you improve things around here? And, and then the R and D department just kind of, spring from that so yeah that's yeah got got the job on craigslist that was uh <laughs> here i am that's amazing well you can't leave us hanging andrew we need to know what you wore to your interview hello oh, yeah <laughs> um yeah i i think i went i went with like slacks and a button up and that might have been too much uh because I, I showed <laughs> up i showed up in the uh the guy running hr at the time uh greeted me in like boat shoes and like khaki cargo shorts okay um, but then the person after me, uh, I saw the guy who interviewed after me and he was wearing a full suit and tie. So I think I, I think I played my cards, right? Good job. Uh, you always for an interview want to dress just one level up, right? Of like yeah. what you're going to actually do at, at work. Um, Chris, where did you come from originally? Yeah. Uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. And did you have horticulture experience before or experience with cannabis or were you just like, oh my God, I want to go to where that is? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was very much into, I was, you know, doing my own cultivation and things like that. I was always really passionate and interested in cannabis. Yeah. I, I, I grew cannabis while I attended college there. Um, of course I was very interested uh, up North where it was legal to do so. And I could engage uh, with a company and in, in that capacity. And that was of a lot of interest to me. So that's kind of what pushed me from moving from Albuquerque up to Denver. Okay. I was to kind of pursue a passion of mind uh, in a, in a, a new framework that, that was legal. <laughs> it's yeah. And, and you succeeded uh, in spades. Um, you know, I, when I met you, so I met you guys in Panama in 2015 at that, at that conference, a very high level, high, what I would consider um, the who's who in a lot of ways of people who were speaking and even attending and exhibiting at that conference. And I mean, I just, re I remember seeing you guys in like the banquet or lunchroom or whatever, you guys were all kind of up against the wall, like at your own table and you guys took up the entire table. And I was sitting somewhere else and I don't even remember who one of you came over to me and said, we want to talk to you and like brought me over to like your group. <laughs> like, Who is this gang of, of misfits here? Uh, <laughs> and you guys just started drilling me and, and I was really impressed with your questions and, and, and I'm impressed with what you guys have said already in terms of how you were already innovating in the industry. And, and even when I think, you know, fast forward today, 10 years forward, there are still people who are buying these materials, who are buying water-based fertilizers, right? And you guys were bucking that trend so early and finding economies, right? Efficiencies that other people, you know, weren't necessarily finding because it is so easy to outsource, right? Those, those products, from, you know, people who have already put them together. And so, you know, my, my question is, why were you guys all there? I mean, what, what were you guys <laughs> hoping to get out of that conference? Did you get out of that conference, what you hoped to get out? Um, and, and how did it sort of push you forward over the next 10 years, what you experienced at that conference? I, I think that, I think that Panama conference, um, that Hort America has put that on, right. The, the ICC, I think yep, they, yep. They, they were doing it like every other year. And it was, a it was a bit of an agricultural, uh, ambassadorship program with the country of Panama too. Yep. It, it ended up being, I think like a watershed moment for our organization going there. I think I was the one that found it and pitched it. Oh. And it was such a long shot. I like at the time it was, it was a pretty out there idea we'd never been to any conference like we hadn't been to like we'd maybe been to a, a local trade show in our own city once before but we'd never even traveled to another state to go to a conference let alone another uh country um and i i pitched it and i just said this is where all the thought leaders are in, in <laughs> farming and uh you know i i think we're, we'd learn a lot and john lord just 
he didn't think twice about it. He just like instantly recognized the value. Uh, and I, I think I was asking for just like me to go or something. And he said, no, we're going to bring everyone. <laughs> we're we're going to bring everyone who can listen as much as they can and ask as many questions and absorb as much information as we can get out of this trip. Um, and we still have some, some of our most like trusted contacts to this day are, are people that we met there. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, for, for being our first, it was my first conference I ever went to. It was uh, quite a doozy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, yeah, I think we, we got exactly out of it. What we were, what we were hoping for. We, we just, we kind of wanted to crash course in elevating uh, our know-how uh, or, or at least meeting people that knew more than we did. So we could start talking to them and, and getting up to speed. And honestly, I think that's one of the things that impressed me the most because, and and not even maybe at that time, because even I was still new to the cannabis industry in 2015, but in hindsight, you know, and, and, you know, fast forward three, four years later, it felt like a lot of the cannabis growers that I talked to said they didn't need, right, to hear from experts in traditional horticulture and CEA and, I mean, you, you guys really bucked that trend from the very beginning, recognizing how much value you could get um, from, from other scientists and researchers and engineers who maybe not were not focused on cannabis, but still understood plants really well and how to grow them indoors, you know, using CEA technology. Yeah, I mean, so much of that foundation in our minds already existed. It was just we needed to get to the source and, and drink from the fountain, you know, and I think having John Lord, you know, his background in, in, in the dairy industry and agriculture himself, you know, he, he felt the same way. And I think that was why it, it became such an easy sell for him as he saw the value in it right away. He's like, yeah, let's get my kind of, you know, we're all, we're all very young at the time um, and inexperienced, certainly in a commercial agricultural capacity. And so John was like, this, this sounds like just a great opportunity to get my, my team up to speed and, and meet the right people. and yeah, see what happens. Was it helpful for you guys all to be there together as opposed to maybe just one or two of you going and then coming back and saying, this is what we learned? Yeah. Cause I think one, there was like, you know, more ears and eyes could absorb more information, but I think it was also helpful for everyone to get on the same page. Like there, it could have been a situation where if like one person took that pilgrimage to the temple of knowledge and then (laughs) then tried to come and bring it back and tell everyone all the stories like it probably wouldn't have stuck or digest as well or you you know that person would have maybe had to convince all their peers of what they Mm -hmm. learned but by sending everyone there we just like everyone kind of like got shown the obelisk at the same time together (laughs) we just like all had our hair blown back (laughs) like chris said you all drank from the same fountain yeah yeah so Tell me, can can you just describe for me and our listeners, what were the early days like? I mean, it almost feels impossible because, you know, so much has evolved and changed over the past 10 years. And I don't think we can tell you all the stories. I don't think so either. You probably don't even remember all the stories. Um, I can think of a few stories, but Hmm. I mean, just... If you have a couple of examples or if you just generally like what, what was it like to be the first? Yeah. I mean, I can, I can give a a little bit of kind of the initial, my initial experience in the industry, you know, having worked at a place before Livewell several years prior, I mean, it was, you know, at at best it was kind of like a big basement grow was kind of what the industry felt like, you know, maybe, maybe at kind of at the high level, like a basement grow on steroids, like somebody got some, some money to play with. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's just make this thing bigger that we've already seen work in practice. uh, Yeah. In a basement. And so, yeah, you know, early on, there was very few regulations to help the industry, you know, adhere to certain things like fire codes or building codes, or how are we going to regulate this product or this crop? Um, I, I know when I started at, at Livewell, it's this big 200,000 square foot building um, with pretty much no walls in it and 20 foot ceilings. And you got plants on the floor in pots. Uh, you got puddles everywhere. People are walking around with hose reels and wands, watering thousands of plants by hand. 
you've got whatever lights somebody could get um, cost effectively because this was a large facility. You know, you had thousands of aluminum hood HID fixtures suspended from probably structures that would be questionable uh, this day and age. <laughs> so yeah, no, no environmental controls to speak of. Uh, this building was just no none at the time. I mean, just, you know, those big swamp coolers you see at football games, those evaporative coolers, you roll mm -hmm. it up, put the hose up to it and turn it on. That was like high end if rooms had any of those in them. Uh, that was a high end room. Yeah. Nice. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we only had like one. So we'd have to like wheel it around to like other rooms. We'd have to like, you like got your turn with having that like that dehumidifier. And, and I think you're like, you're also kind of highlighting like two, two things are happening. Like, cause I think now your question was kind of about like what it was like the newness of like the early days of the cannabis, like legal market, but mm -hmm. it's also the early days of, of indoor farming. You know, the, yeah, that's we, true. The, the, there's lots of stories about kind of the regulations about cannabis evolving and it's federally legal and the states are having to figure out what to do with it. But at the exact same time, also indoor farming was brand new. So when like when inspectors and stuff would come check us out, like forget the, that the crops were cannabis, they'd never seen anyone try to farm indoors before. So they didn't know what to do with that either. So I, I, I think we were kind of, it was kind of the early days of both. That's a really good point. Um, and certainly, you know, cannabis and vertical farming or indoor farming were, were sort of running in parallel. The fire was catching in both of those uh, industries at the same time. The nice thing about cannabis, though, is that you guys had somehow the, the money and the funding to invest in the technology that then helped sort of drag vertical farming along with it. You know, when I just think about HVAC, you know, what you guys dealt with on the HVAC systems, I don't think I've ever seen more HVAC <laughs> systems on a building in my life used and abandoned and, you know, reused or repurposed. Um, and, you know, if I just think about that and sort of that hodgepodge patchwork, right, of, of trying different equipment for different rooms and different situations and different crop stages, and this isn't working, so we're going to try this, and then we're going to try that. I mean, you guys really tried a lot of things. Um, a lot of technologies, a lot of techniques, even when, when you were mentioning, Chris, using Argus for fertilizer management, right? Like that's a very traditional greenhouse uh, technology to use, um, but is so innovative in indoor farming, regardless of what type of indoor farming. Um, and they'd also, and they'd never made a, a single element injector system before because we didn't know what we wanted our recipe to be. Because there wasn't, there wasn't like, oh. a, we couldn't like walk down to the local extension university right. uh, or the, or, or, or pick up a textbook and see the exact mineral nutrition requirements of cannabis. So we didn't know what our, you know, A and B tanks should have in them. So we, so we had to custom design a single element dose so we could change our nitrogen separate from our calcium. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that was, they'd never built one of those before we asked them to. And now it's probably just, you know, standard. Yeah. They, I mean, they had, they had done some for like research institutions. It was fairly uncommon um, because most people in commercial ag kind of already had established what the fertilizer recipe was going to be. Uh, and I remember when we first started with Argus on that project, a lot of it was just like making sure that we could actually handle this project. I mean, I spent a lot of phone calls with them just kind of being like, be sure you're aware of like the nature of the system and the complexity, you know, we're happy to sell you one, but um, it's, it's going to be a bit of a challenge to get this thing up and running. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was an interesting venture for sure. That's interesting that they cautioned you. I mean, was, was the caution well received um, and was it as hard as they said it was going to be? Uh, it was definitely a challenge and it was probably one of my first like major projects where the project working well or not and in large part would have very significant ramifications on my future with the company. So I was very invested in it, obviously, <laughs> as was the owner, John Lord. So like it kind of had to work. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Argus provided a lot of like great documentation, technical documentation about how the system worked everything from just technical mechanical documentation to like how the chemistry of fertilizers work and all that kind of stuff. And me having some, some background in chemistry kind of made that a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was a challenging project and it took a lot of engagement from both uh, myself, the company, and then Argus to, to make it happen. 
I mean, good on Argus for that, for, for educating you guys and, and helping you through that. Um, and, you know, Argus does come from horticulture. So I, I, you know, they do do speak plants, right. And they do speak CEA. What, what was your experience like on the other side, maybe with HVAC vendors or suppliers, manufacturers who, who had zero experience with indoor agriculture? What was that experience like? Uh, well, yeah, that's, that one's pretty interesting. That was a little bit before um, uh, Andrew and my time in terms of having any kind of real voice on what those systems are going to look like or how we were going to design them. Uh, there was some other individuals at the company at the time that were working with, you know, the best that was available to us because, you know, a lot of vendors didn't want to work with us because of the concern around banking or cash. And then from an engineering standpoint, this the same case. You had to find an engineer that was willing to work in our industry and, and outside of their depth, too. I mean, we probably got a decent engineer at the time that, you know, they were familiar with how to cool a large space, um, but weren't thinking about, you know, sensible latent ratios and transpiration and all that kind of stuff. So what we got is, you know, what you, what you said, uh, 55, 20 ton package DX systems. Okay. Well, let's set 50 of these things on the roof. That should get it done. Uh, you know, we'll duck them into the space and, you know, cross our fingers and, uh, yeah. And it more uh, or less did get it done. It's still getting it done today. Absolutely. And I, and, and before that we tried, I think we put, 20 swamp coolers on the roof like big swamp coolers you know uh and that that worked better than the the ones that you rolled around and hooked the hose up to inside the building so it's kind of this like evolution but eventually we got to a point where you know there's some real investment going into this facility it, it was going to be it probably still is one of the largest at the time it was certainly the largest in colorado and yeah we've got to make this thing work at this scale so yeah it's time to get some real hvac equipment in here and at the time 50 20 ton dx units seemed like the best solution and so you know we just had people on the roof saw cutting the roof and then semi-truck trailers rolling up with cranes just picking them off and setting them on the roof uh decommissioning the or we didn't even pull the old swamp coolers off we just uh closed off the duct and put some uh, protective canvas over the top but yeah, that's, that's kind of where we came from. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I, when I think about those times, I mean, like you said, the, the risk that contractors and engineers and vendors felt like they were taking on and they, they really probably were taking on some risk, right? Cause who knows what was going to happen with this industry if the Fed was going to come in and crack down on, you know, not just you, but anyone who supported you. Um, I, I can imagine, you know, that that's that's a hard pill to swallow or to take a risk on, um, yeah. but also just not having the experience or know-how to understand, right? I mean, how many engineers, you know, are also understand plants and agriculture and like you were saying, transpiration rates and um, understanding that there's not just a cooling load, but there's a, a, a dehumidification, a humidity load to, to handle. So I think, in a the lot of, I think in the beginning, no one, like no one was factoring in the dehumidification. You were yeah. just getting, people were doing the math. This how many lights you have, this how much cooling you need. Yep. And then usually the dehumidification just happened to work as a bonus or didn't. And then you had to figure that consequence out later. And then there was an era where, where engineers were kind of hip to the, to the dehumidification part of the equation and saying, oh, okay, we'll treat the plants like it's a pool. And the, there was like that, yep. that phase that we went through where that was the, the new, the new piece of math to add there is, yep. is let's treat this thing like a big pool. And then finally we started, you know, wrapping in the, Pinman Monteith equations and <laughs> all the getting into transpiration kinetics and it, it just uh, the dynamics of of the plants and and their interaction with their environment and, and we didn't know any better we didn't know we didn't know yeah. and so every grower I think knows how to troubleshoot stuff when their <laughs> when their temps are out of spec and you just start adding and subtracting systems mm. uh, flipping switches bringing in more uh, coolers or dehumidifiers and until it DJs to the right mix level. Um, yeah, I mean, what they did get right is, is we had enough, you know, sensible capacity here to turn this thing into a meat locker. Um, so that's that <laughs> a problem. Uh, but then, yeah, being able to control all these units and and get the get the environment right where we wanted it, that was that's always been a challenge. It's still a challenge. Um, I remember visiting you guys at one point and looking 
uh, data. Um, and you, uh, there are two or three different systems that we were looking at data from. And I also remember being a little frustrated because it didn't log data for a long, you know, it was like you had a 30, 30 day window um, or shorter or maybe longer, but then you couldn't download that data. So you're just you looking were frustrated. At oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you guys were way more frustrated, but in my, you know, day of visiting, I was like, oh my God, how can you like, how can you make decisions, right? Informed decisions if you can't, you know, look at the history of your data, um, you know, let alone just how do you understand and interpret your data. But, you know, once you figure that out, you know, how can you go back and see what went wrong and what went right for that matter? Um, so, and, and, and Andrew, for you, I mean, being on the science side and the plant science side with tissue culture and everything, like who, who did you, who could you confer with? I mean, were you on your own completely? Yeah, I mean, that was a good question. Kind of for a while, I, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to discount any, um, you know, that, that I did this all on my own because, you know, one, I, I, I mean, we all kind of stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us. You know, everyone in the cannabis industry before legalization. I mean, there's decades of people who were, who were growing during prohibition, who were learning a whole lot. It was an incredibly industrious and innovative and clever group of people that were figuring out all this stuff kind of in hiding. And, and when I, and so I, you know, I learned from, I learned a lot from, from those folks. And then, you know, everyone who, you know, and I, I had a lot of academic resources just only in manuscripts, you know, I, I wasn't, we would call, we would try to call universities and talk to them. And if you use the code word tomato, you could, you could get, you could get kind of far, but, mm. but trying to, you know, trying to think about cannabis is, is just any other crop was a mindset that I w kind of had. And so I was just reading a lot of academic literature, reading a lot, you know, started with all the tissue culture papers and I started learning all my vocabulary. I didn't know what a photosynthetic photon was. And, uh, you know, and then when I learned what that was, I was like, well, well, I, let's get a meter. So I know, so we can measure how, what our PPFD levels are. And then before you know it, everyone on our grows started using micromoles as a unit of measurement. And we used to say, you know, pounds per light, like everyone did. And I started saying, what if we use the metric system? Um, and you know, we measure things in like, you know, grams per square meter. And, and so it, it kind of, it was kind of a, a slow, slow kind of methodical process. And, um, you know, I, it was a lot of self-learning for sure. Um, but I, I definitely want to, I was kind of motivated and engaged and in, in kind of ravenous looking up every paper I could find and, and reading about it, but also kind of taking all that information. Cause it would always be, you know, I would always learn something new and then take it to people who were growing at live well, you know, Chris and some of my other peers who had a lot of more years experience growing the plant. And we, we would kind of talk to each other about it. I would kind of show them the thing that I learned and then they would kind of square it up with what they knew from their experiences. And we would kind of just start applying the science to the crops in front of us. Um, Do you have an example of, I mean, you guys had different teams, but I never felt like you were siloed from each other, you know, and maybe it was at that first conference in Panama, the few times that, you know, I visited you guys in Denver. I remember like walking long routes sometimes from office to office to, to lab to location. Um, I remember that first office where many of you were crammed into right out next to around the corner from the security desk or whatever. And, you know, I almost feel like maybe there was um, a flask and a spinner uh, in, the, in that room when I visited you the first time. But, but even though sometimes you were all crammed in the same room and sometimes you guys had some new spaces that you could spread out, I've always felt like you guys have been very interactive and collaborative. How did that evolve or did it just like happen because, because maybe Panama just kind of set that tone or was it always like that? And, and how has that benefited you guys um, and, and live well? And I guess now Pharmacan in the growth of, of the company and the organization. 
I think it was a long, a, a long time ago in the history at Livewell. It had a, probably a similar organization structure as you see a lot commonly. Uh, were you kind of like a, a master grower or a head cultivator? And I, I think that can be an effective way of kind of leading. But for a while, a long while now, we we kind of haven't done, we kind of got it moved in a different direction from that structure and kind of managed democratically a bit. We are kind of by committee. We have a lot of um, we have a lot of departments that kind of specialize in, in different technical expertise or, or labor management or, um, you know, systems design or control. And, and I, I think all of the, the leaders and, and everyone within their team all kind of really like the support and the camaraderie of, of kind of having each other's back. And it, it just kind of naturally, it just kind of naturally happened that we all would just kind of like run things by each other and then, you know, reach, you know, we, you'd kind of form a quorum if enough people got together and talked about it and, and you like the ideas or yeah, that's worth a try. And then we, we start, um, we kind of started that way. And, and, and then um, we kind of run things through the R and D department became kind of a, a, a bit of a gatekeeper for process control and improvement. You know, it became a lot of prove it you know, let's run controlled experiments and, and set things up. Anyone can have an idea and bring it to the table. And if we like the merits of that idea, we can uh, write up an experiment protocol and test it. And then we'll, we'll look at all the results together. And, and then, you know, it should be obvious uh, thumbs up or thumbs down. If, if, you know, if this is a new, new change we want to make to our, to our systems, everyone kind of, that just became the law of the land kind of empirical and data driven. Um, but then, yeah, a lot of, but everyone's there to collaborate on ideas. Yeah. I think too, the, the, the kind of how fast we grew as an organization and, and a lot to do with, you know, John Lord's early involvement, just kind of identifying early on. And, and to Andrew's point, like, yeah, we never, I don't think that in my tenure at Livewell, there was never a person that was, whose title was master grower. There was always like a facility manager. And then, we just kind of all started finding our specialties and then, you know, the manager at the time had determined that it was important to, to determine uh, who was kind of leading whatever specialty it was, be it R&D or labor management um, or nutrition or whatever. And then we'd identify these kind of leaders and then they would be working together in a group to help make decisions together because just how large the, the organization was and how fast it was growing. It just didn't seem appropriate to silo that into one person. It wasn't something that one person could do. It took a team to get it done. Did you guys, did from each of these teams, did, did any, do you have an example of where there was sort of like an, an aha moment or, or, or an observation made at, at any chain within, you know, from, I don't know, from tissue culture and clone um, through, you know, production through post-harvest. Did anyone ever make an observation that was like, hey, if we made a change potentially somewhere else within this chain, this could be an improvement, you know, a long-term improvement or, or a, a yield improvement or quality improvement or, you know, I, I'm just curious, like how like those seeds sort of get planted and, and the, the fruit of, of those ideas from maybe even each of those teams. Trying to think of some examples. I, the, I mean, we talked about the irrigation system already and that, that was a huge one, um, just changing that mineral nutrition over and seeing how much that affected, how, how we could get the same yields, but with the much cheaper, you know, but saving a lot of costs. Uh, I think probably the next big aha moment that happened was um, when we were researching LED lighting. Were you, were you thinking that same thing too, Chris? The, yeah. Yeah. I'm so curious about LED lighting because I feel like you guys, at least in my mind, were one of the first to trial them, a very early adopter. And, and I'm curious where that idea came from, who knocked on your door, or what conference or exhibit you went to. And like how you even convinced each other to try this newfangled technology. I, I wish I could know the answer to that question because I also feel like we were super early adopters. And so like I, I kind of I, I feel really prideful about our contributions to the horticulture LED space, but I actually have no way of confirming 
how significant or important that was. Uh, but we were, it seems like the who's who of the LED manufacturing world has been in our facility uh, from the beginnings of their companies. And I've seen, it feels like I've seen every generation of LED light that's come out in the last 15 years. And the the first light we got, I think was a Neil Yorio light. I'm not sure if he was with BIOS at the time. Interesting. But probably like 2012 or something. 2012? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh it was like a it was like a car engine. It like looked like an automotive piece <laughs> of machinery. It, it had like pistons coming out of it. it <laughs> um, and it it fried the plants. It was way too, it was because no, no one, we didn't have, no one had a par meter. So I don't, I can only guess. <laughs> the LEDs fried the plants. <laughs> yeah. I can only, it, it, it's just from like too much light. Uh, and they were really hot and the heat sinks. I, I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and so the, but that was, that was, you know, before we knew what we knew to measure and stuff, but it kind of started there. We had like four LED lights over some flowering plants and, um, we, we saw that classic like photo bleaching where there's like mm-hmm. white, all the flowers turn white. Um, but we didn't know why. And um, it started there. And then uh, we worked with a couple other people came knocking around. We, uh, we worked with Illumitex with those guys. And then, um, and then there, there was a, a group of engineers split off from Illumitex and, and founded BML. And we worked with those guys and then BML, um, evolved into fluence and we worked with those guys and, and, and Neil went off and did bios. And I mean, we, we could not, we could just name, name all, all pretty much all the major North American led manufacturers. We seem to kind of, we're just invited everyone. And I think we, what we ended up doing, Chris, was we made that gauntlet. We, we called it the gauntlet. We like, we like set up a table and had just every led light we could find um, on, you know, all, all along this table and we would put our plants through that and just collect plant data underneath it. And we would just, and we were looking at everything. We were looking at kilowatt hours and micromole efficiencies and um, yields, yields as a function of photons. And we, we were just kind of whatever math we could, we could throw at the analysis to try and, cause we were trying to figure out how to compare them to HPS. Are these as good as HPS? And we kept on getting data back that showed us if we gave them the same amount of photons as HPS and other things were the same, like temperature, then we got the same yields out, out of the plants. And I think that after all of that data and looking at that um, together, I, I, it, it, it wasn't a decision. It, it was obvious that, well, if, if it's just, if we give them the same amount of photons and these LEDs can, can do that twice as efficiently as the sodium lamps, then we're going to save money on our energy bill. So we made that switch. I think we bought, we bought a bunch of, uh, we started in veg. We, we, we did our first project was in 2015 and, and we, we changed a big check, uh, section of our, our vegetative lights. And then ever since then, we, we systematically went through and retrofitted every HID and fluorescent light to led over a couple of years. And now a hundred percent of all, all Pharmacan and, and LiveWell sites are, are led that probably the first change probably started happening in like 2014, 2015. Yeah. I, I think early on, it may have even been a little bit before when we had rolled out uh, the, the Illumitex kind of traditional blue red spectrum in our clone room. Um, and actually today we still are running those same lights. Uh, and they still work great um, for a vegetative and propagative growth. Actually our, our, our mom, Mother Farms and uh, Clone here are still uh, those old Illumitex kind of like early LED technology where it was that red and blue with a little bit of phosphor coating. Um, and yeah, those things are workhorses. They're still getting it done today. I mean, eight years later, LEDs are supposed to have <laughs> what thirty thousand hours of of life, right? So those are those have gone eighteen or twenty four hours a day for wow for eight years. Wow. And, and they've stuck around. I mean, I, I was, I, Andrew, I'm glad to, to hear that, you know, that you guys were collecting data, because that was going to be one of the questions I wanted to ask about that is, you know, what were the metrics that you were looking at? And, you know, especially in the early days when people didn't necessarily have this vocabulary, or understand that science of, you know, of photons, 
and and light energy and its impact on on plant growth 1% light 1% yield i don't know if you found that same trend but it seems to hold true with all sorts of crops um but you also made a comment it was obvious um once you saw the data but there's still a lot of people who say that it's the led lights are too expensive i mean what how expensive can i ask how, do you guys remember how much you guys paid for an LED lamp in 2014 and how much you would pay for it today? I don't, so like three times the cost? I don't really remember because the, the lights have changed too. Like the, it's true. Uh, it's the, true. The, um, sometimes, you know, it's now, now we're asking for more light. Uh, and so there's some stronger lamps and yeah. Dimmable and I, features and other, yeah. And I, yeah, I know that like efficacy is, the efficiencies have increased and new diode costs have decreased or something, but I don't quite remember what the price per fixture was, but I do remember what the payback was. We were like, those things were paid back in like less than six months. Wow. Yeah. I, I, if I had to like, just make my best guess, I would say that they were two to three X the cost of like your best HID fixture. Yeah. Um, at the time. And you know what? That's kind of still true. Uh, is it even today? Uh, yeah. If you're looking at something that would be kind of what would have been referred to at the time as an equivalent, like your equivalent to your thousand watt HD, HID fixture, this is the LED equivalent of that. Yeah. I think you were, you were three to, yeah, two to three X probably if you were getting it, if you're buying enough of them of like your best HID product, you know, a digital ballast, you know, the, the latest and greatest double-ended HBS fixture. Uh, but yeah, it, it pencils out real fast, even back then, uh, at that cost, as Andrew alluded to. That is really fast, six months. Um, to a point, it took a rebate to make, to accelerate that payback. Okay. But it was, uh, that, that was helpful. That was a helpful component. And even if you didn't have the rebate, so then maybe it's a year or a year and a half payback, assuming you're going to be in business for longer than a year and a year and a half, right? Yeah, I, I mean, it's going to pay back. Yeah, I think I, in the cannabis industry, we, I, I know like in the HVAC world, I, I know you mostly deal with with uh, HVAC systems that plant folks use, but I know in like the commercial world, paybacks are like on a 15 year exactly. ROI. But yeah, we're, if, if you're if you're over 12 months uh, payback, like we're not, we're, we can't extend over <laughs> 10 that <laughs> no, I believe that. I mean, I remember um, talking to a grower early when I started Dr. Greenhouse and, and uh, it was going to be, I penciled out like an 18 month payback to have, you know, a good HVAC system versus, you know, what I would, you know, not consider as good. And he's like, you know, if it's, if it's not 12 months or less then you know, forget about, it. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? Like <laughs> any other system, right. In the commercial world, if you have a payback of less than 10 years, you're winning because like you said, right. Like it's a five or 15 or 20 year lifespan. So, you know, once you hit that, hit that 10 year mark, you know, it's, it's all coming back to you. So um, probably don't need to get into that, this territory for, you know, the, this podcast, but yeah, a lot of that is to do with banking and the, for sure. Cost of, you know, the cost of a loan, you have to go get predatory loans to finance a capital investment. And so the faster you can pay that predatory loan off the, you know, the less, interest, the less interest adds up on it. So, you know, and, and then other things about, you know, needing to, you're selling your crop to make payroll. It's still, it's all just like agriculture too. You know, you're, you're, um, you can kind of only overextend, you know, past one harvest or something because you're you're relying on every harvest to to you know keep your you know keep your your company going. That's a really good point. Um, did you have to change any of your other operations when you guys finally you know decided okay we're going to switch out to LEDs and you started incrementally you know moving through your rooms and then your new facilities you were using LED lights? Did you make any other changes around those lights? you know, in terms of, I don't know, ceiling heights or, you know, like the, the distance between the, the lamp and the plants, uh, the, the temperature settings. Uh, I mean, I think one of the things that always impressed me about you guys is that you have always looked at all of the variables together, right? You, you guys have never looked at, at one thing at a time. You've always recognized that all of these variables interact with each other. Was that... 
was that surprising? You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, wh what modifications did you have to make in your other operations, uh, if you can, around these new LED lights? Well, I, I think that kind of brings into the picture, uh, like, what we kind of refer to as, like, the LiveWell 2.0 model, which is our Detroit facility, right? So we changed what we could in, in Colorado. Obviously, this facility, you've seen it. Uh, we still have those same 50, 25-ton units on the roof. We've since added quite a few more as we've built out more rooms. And, you know, I think we learned, you know, early on kind of a lot of the same things that, that everybody else was and that was using LEDs, which was that, yeah, we needed to get the, the room temperatures up a little bit higher to get the plant tissue to be a little bit warmer. You know, I think one of the nice things about LEDs is we were able to get them, park them a lot closer to the canopy. So that's saving vertical height, um, which allowed us to do these really massive two-tiered systems here in Colorado, where you've got two tiers and, you know, 24-foot clear ceilings. That wouldn't have been possible with HID for a lot of reasons, uh, thermal management, um, fire code. You can't have water above a thousand watt HID fixture. You can't? Yeah. <laughs> but it's inevitably going to leak on the fixture. Right. We all know. And, and LEDs, you know, they're rated to handle that. And so, yeah, I think it in, in large part allowed us to, yeah, the vertical farming thing became real to us um, with the integration of LED technology. But having adopted LED early on in Colorado, and then, you know, as you've mentioned, rather rapidly switching this facility over to, you know, LED as our sole source lighting, during that time, we're designing this plant in, in Michigan. That was probably, what, 2019 we started design for that facility. So while that wasn't a ground up, it was, a, it was actually a skeleton, a shell. We built all the rooms there. But that was uh, designed by intent to be an LED facility. So, you know, having learned what we did here in Colorado in this facility and having to make the systems as they were adapt to LED, we were able to have that kind of foresight going into that project to determine what was the HVAC going to look like? You know, how did the rooms need to be controlled? How did they need to be insulated? What type of HVAC systems are we going to employ there um, to get the room conditions where they needed to be to really perform and optimize plant growth under LED? Um, so that was kind of the first time where we had the opportunity to basically start with a blank slate, knowing that LED was going to be our lighting source and then kind of design from there. I know you guys like did the, these R&D projects together um, and convinced yourselves um, as, as a collective that this was a, a worthwhile technology and switch. I'm just curious, like, what were you hearing from outside of the organization when you guys were testing LED lights? Did people think you guys were crazy, that you were nuts? Yeah, I think a lot of, there was a lot of skepticism in um some some of it was maybe empirically valid. People had had tried some things and used their own eyes and felt like it, the the results weren't there. And I, I could maybe I could opine maybe on those reasons, maybe what was going on. Um, you know, I, I don't know how how many people out there who tried LEDs were were maybe setting up their trials the right way, kind of you know, matching light intensities or, or, or making sure their temperatures were the same or, or something. Um, but I, it, I don't, I don't really remember us paying much attention to that. I think we were just really heads down and focused on our projects and, uh, and, and weren't really feeling influenced by that. I, I think, I, honestly, I hear that question the most from vendors. It's, really? Yeah. Cause yeah. And, and, and maybe it's cause vendors are out there on the road interacting yeah. with a lot more cultivators and, and kind of hearing that that's the way the wind's blowing or something. So I, I get that question all the time from people selling who sell equipment, even not even just people who sell LEDs, uh, all kinds of vendors. And I, I mean, I was at a, we, we were, Nadia, we were at a conference together uh, a few weeks ago and, and I met cultivators there who were like, no, I'd never go full LED. So it's still, I mean, that, that yeah. that's still an opinion that people have. And, and I don't, I'm not sure what more convincing that they would they would need, but we were just we were always pretty just kind of focused on our own on our own data, and then the results seem to be speaking for themselves. So I'm I'm not sure if I could really square up that that skepticism. Yeah, I, I recall. I, I mean, I recall skepticism early on, like, but as Andrew said, it was kind of just background noise, you know. Yeah, there were there were even you know obviously we had plenty of employees that 
had so much experience before doing, you know, whatever was working well for them. And just because it was so new to the scene and, and no one had really had enough time with it yet to really consistently get results. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was just natural for people to be skeptical about it as a technology that was going to work in our space. I don't yeah. think there's anything special about a sodium bulb <laughs> or, a, you know, it just, I mean, what a, what a convenient, like luck that the emission spectra of like sodium gas when you ignite it is like, exactly what plants crave. Um, <laughs> you know, I, and, and so there, there's a lot of factors there. I know, I know there was some you know, people had their theories that, okay, well, these plants were bred, you know, mm. in garages and basements uh, under the spectrum. And so they got selected for preferring them and, and people had their, people had this, you know, there's always this theories about, you know, using metal halide for veg because it's blue and because the sun is a little blue during the spring and summer, and then it gets a little red shifted <laughs> in the fall. So that you switch to sodium. And I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, kind of uh, lore in, in cannabis cultivation and, and a bunch of it is, is empirically backed up with results. And some of yeah. it maybe feels a little bit more mythological, uh, and so that's uh, the, the whole, our whole R and D department, um, kind of tackled a lot of those questions, kind of, kind of taking all those kind of norms, uh, of, of the industry forefathers and, and kind of challenging them just, you know, to stand up to testing. And then we kind of, we kind of sifted through that stuff and, and, um, plenty of that cultivation knowledge was super sound and, and is still a backbone of our protocols, but some of the, some of those other things maybe kind of got brought into the 21st century or, or kind of up to speed with, with modern kind of crop science. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, a, that's kind of how we feel about it. How important is it to have an R and D designated area? And, and what, what tips would you give to other growers in setting one up? Chris and I were, were actually thinking about this earlier and kind of what the first thought that popped in my head is just like every grower is, not, is actively doing R and D like every, I've never met a single farmer that doesn't, tinker and, and mess around, you know, with, with trying to improve their systems. I, I think that everyone does it. Um, I think it's like it's a natural calling of that uh, profession it, of being a farmer is to innovate and improve. And, and so the, the best advice to someone who wants to maybe start doing that maybe more purposefully or with more intent is, is to make sure that they have a good uh, control uh, you get, you have that you, you, you limit your test to a single variable the best you can, and you, you run a control group alongside your test group at the same time, you know, don't look at last year's harvest or, or even last week's harvest, you know, cause there's in crop science, the, the life cycle of the plant, there's so many things going on, which means so many things can go wrong. And so you just want to make sure that any confounding noise or nonsense is happening to both your control group and your test group at the same time. So I would say, you know, I don't know if you got to build a room or a special place for it. You can do, you can do a, a research project anywhere. I mean, I could, I could probably fantasize about the Rolls Royce of a controlled environment mm-hmm. growth chamber where you can, where you have controls over all these uh, perfectly uh, these different variables, but I, I think you can do it anywhere. Uh, biggest advice is to make sure you you do a you limit it to one variable and you have a, a, a test group and a control group right next you know side by side at the same time. That's excellent advice. Go ahead, Chris. I, I was going to say, yeah, just to add to that, you know, early on, we didn't have by any stretch of the imagination, the luxury of controlled environment growth chambers to do this type of R&D. And so it was very much done here in our production facility. And I think for the purpose of production, it's actually it can be very important to be doing the R&D in the same space where you're doing production because that those are ultimately the variables that those plants are going to be subject to. Um, everybody would love to do really cool esoteric applied research in a, a plant growth chamber. That sounds awesome, right? But, um, you know, especially at the time, we never were going to have, our facilities weren't ever going to be capable of that level of control at that time. So, you know, and especially with how cultivars perform, right? You know, that they need to be subject to normal production environment to make sure that they can be productive in those conditions. And, and so your experiments need to be able to put plants to the test in those same environments where production is happening. Because um, we're not just doing this. Obviously, we're interested from a research perspective. But at the end of the day, these plants have to produce because um, that's what's paying the bills. 
Tune in next week to hear the second half of our interview with Chris Chapdelaine and Andrew Alfred.